You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. Hey everyone, and welcome to Corporate Quitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ionello, and today's guest is super special because I am a user of his platform and I'm obsessed with it. His name is Mike Caden. He's the founder and CEO of Red Circle, a hosting platform for podcasts. Through his experience building Red Circle's technology and growing the company's customer base, Mike has had the unique experience of working with thousands of podcasters and advertisers, from the smallest marketers to the largest publishers in the space. He brings his technical background and expertise in the podcasting industry together to help move the audio advertising space forward for independent creators. And I obviously am a huge advocate for Red Circle. Literally every podcasting client that I work with, I'm like, run to Red Circle. So the fact that you're on my show, I'm having like a fangirl moment of like, oh my God, I'm meeting the CEO who's like doing the thing. So thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So what is your full backstory? Like, how did you get into entrepreneurship? Like, I knew you were at Uber for a little bit, but like, how did this even come to be? Yeah. I mean, entrepreneurship just sort of happened because I became obsessed with the idea of what Red Circle is today and sort of woke up one night and decided, okay, I guess I need to start a business around this. It wasn't some consequence of being an entrepreneurialist at heart or some consequence of reading a million books about doing your own thing. Just sort of woke up one day and was obsessed with the idea of building this business, and the rest sort of followed. That said, I can tell you a little bit about what I was up to beforehand. Before starting Red Circle, I was at Uber, and I was working there as a software engineer and then eventually a software engineering manager. And I started at Uber when Uber was about 230 people, and there was about 40 software engineers when I started there. And so really, we all fit in one room in San Francisco. You just had this incredible experience of being there when Everybody still knew each other. And then leaving, you know, four and a half years later to start Red Circle, where I was running a team of 40 engineers and where the company was 20,000 people strong. Also started at Uber when everybody loved Uber, left Uber when everybody hated Uber, and really had this wild ride experience there. But a big part of why I left to start something new was because I missed sort of the feeling of being in a, a small room with people that you knew building something on a shared vision and wanted to get back to doing something like that, but perhaps in a less uh, mega corporate uh, environment. Yeah. Do you find that your experience at Uber is kind of what helped you even come up with the concept of Red Circle, right? Like coming from that engineering, like software background, as well as like an app, like did that even help with the idea or are they not connected at all? There's some connection. I think when I was at Uber in the final year or two, I started to be a little bit less excited about the company I was working for. It wasn't just that uh, the company had grown large and had become more corporate and I was spending a lot more time in meetings and such. It was also that not necessarily that I came to believe that Uber was bad for the world, but I just became a lot less confident that Uber was good for the world. And I really wanted to find something that I could work on where I would be really confident that what I was doing was a fundamental moral good. And so a big part of going to start Red Circle was learning that was sort of in the beginning of Uber, there was this idea that we were helping drivers in a really significant way. A lot of drivers were unable to find work or needed part-time work or needed work to cover the time between one job and the next. And we were providing the significant value. And a lot of drivers in the beginning were making a lot of money. But by the end, I'm sort of less confident that the platform was providing a lot of value back for drivers and really wanted to be sure that what we built would do that. And so really what Red Circle is, which is a platform for creators that help them to earn money on their podcast, 
reflects that same vision, which is that we wanted to provide software that gave creators, in this case, creators at Uber, it was drivers, the opportunity to be able to make money through software in a way that they weren't able to do so before. You know, the big idea behind Red Circle is that if your content is good and you can generate an audience, you deserve to be paid for that. So there is some connection, I think, to the idea of using software to give people opportunity. And then the last thing is that Uber, what I worked on actually was marketing software, software for Uber's marketing team distributed around the world to be able to send emails and SMS and push notifications, all that kind of stuff. And in the end of the day, what Red Circle provides to advertisers is very similar, software to help them deploy advertising campaigns and podcasting. Um, so there's definitely some overlap. Uh, in the end of the day, software is just software. You can apply it to any domain. So I'm not an expert in podcasting, but I've become so by building this business. I'm sure it was pretty hard to walk away from something that was good. Like it's really hard when things are great and you're like, well, what if it could be better or what if I can change things? You know, especially coming from the ground up, like seeing where Uber went with what was started with. So like, how was that experience? Yeah, I also had a kid at the same time. <laughs> so there was a lot going on and it was a little bit scary. I was lucky enough to like have enough financial security to have some confidence that if it didn't work out, the whole world would not explode. However, you know, I did go around first looking for jobs instead of starting Red Circle and found a bunch of stuff and did a bunch of interviews and got job offers and just found myself, you know, really just not excited to do any of those jobs. They weren't bad companies or bad people, but just not making me feel like what I was spending all my time on was this fundamental good in the world. Before Uber, if you can believe it, I hadn't really worked at a for-profit institution. I was a high school teacher. I worked at some educational nonprofits, you know, and then I went to like the most capitalist company imaginable in Uber. So having that like broad difference and then going to look for more of these like primarily capitalist companies really opened my eyes to this idea that I wanted to find something where there was a good economic opportunity. I don't want to build a business just to have it fail because it can't make money. Um, but we're also, I was excited about the work itself and something that I felt was providing fundamental value in the world and allowing creators to live off their art or to make anything from you know, beer money to date night money to rent money to life-changing small business money, depending on how good they are and, and how good we are at helping them monetize. It's just something that feels really good at the end of the day when I, I uh, you know, reconcile the books and can see how much money is getting put in podcasters' pockets every month. So yeah, you know, a big part of the jump was, okay, I know I want to leave Uber. Let me go look around at other companies and see what's out there and just finding out that my feeling that I was having at Uber about like, you know, primarily just being an instrument of money making and not necessarily good value in the world was not unique to Uber really, but was unique to a lot of sort of secure corporate jobs that I was able to get offers at, but decided in the end to take a risk and, and work on something that I cared more about. And look, you know, a lot of startups fail. I'll be frank and say in the beginning, I didn't have a lot of confidence that this thing would be successful. And I took a risk that I had the wherewithal to do. I was lucky enough to be in a position where if it failed, I'd be okay. But I'm the kind of person that works his butt off anything that he works on. And through hiring some great people and through building investment in the company and building some great software, we've been able to be successful since then. Yeah. And congrats, because it's like you said, a lot of people end up failing at these things. But also, I would say congrats to you for also recognizing that the excitement piece was what's was most important when it came to making your next decision. Because I think a lot of people think rationally about like, oh, I need the money or like rattle off this list of things. But if you're not excited about something, it's not going to be a good experience regardless of how much they're paying you or the perfect location or the best office setup or all those things. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you should take one job or another, but I think a lot of people undervalue their like personal passion and excitement for the job, right? And it doesn't reflect itself in your paycheck, but it does reflect itself in your mental health, in your excitement to come to work every day. And it's hard to put a dollar value on those things, but they have value and everybody needs to find some balance there. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like the trend now is like, I saw a video the other day and it was like, millennials are leaving their like cushy jobs to be like broke hippies in a van. And that's like where people are headed. Like, it's not necessarily about the paycheck. Like you want to get paid obviously, but also it's more about like actually being happy and actually achieving work-life balance and like being in an environment that's like fulfilling, whether it's you're on your own or you're in a work environment, they have to be there. Yeah. I mean, I follow a few van life uh, <laughs> things on Instagram myself. You know, I have a kid and an established sort of life that, that does not at all allow for that, but I still understand the fantasy of it. And there's a lot of, uh, in today's movement, talking about four-day work weeks or sort of employer friendliness towards time off and all these kinds of things. And I subscribe to those ideas, maybe not a four-day work week for a small startup like us, but to the idea that keeping your employees happy pays itself back with interest. A couple extra holidays a year, you know, we, we're taking a couple of like summer Fridays off this year, for example. Those kinds of things to improve your employees' mental health and keep them sane when they're working their butts off on the thing is going to pay itself back either in helping to retain them or in better performance from the employees because they're just in a better mental state. Can't afford a van for every employee, but uh, <laughs> but but if somebody was living in a van and wanted to work that way and have a flexible life in that way, the company would be super open to it. So do you think that people can actually achieve work-life balance and be happy in, in a work environment? Because there are some people who are like pessimistic about it and they're like, oh, it's not possible because, right, we're reporting to someone or whatever the case may be. First of all, I hate the term reporting to. It's like, it feels like <laughs> like a military thing, right? You have somebody that's your spirit guide or your coach. That's who your boss is if your boss is doing a good job. They're not uh, command and control oriented. They're growth and coaching oriented if you have a good boss. Just wanted to put that out there. I think it is achievable. I was sitting at a group of CEOs having a dinner uh, at something put together by one of our investors a little while back. And it was attended by a bunch of amazing CEOs building amazing companies, you know, bigger and later stage companies than mine. So I was just sitting there quietly and listening because these folks were all smarter than me. And, you know, there was some kind of debate between a few of them between this sort of like give your employees space and be super employee friendly and help them to achieve work-life balance, you know, sort of approach versus some other folks who are making an argument like this. They were saying, if you ask Olympic athletes if they have work-life balance, they're going to say no. They're working like crazy on their craft to be the best in the world at that thing. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. I mean, maybe for the founder, trying to be an Olympic athlete at work makes sense. But are we really expecting of every single employee at the company that they're trying to be sort of world-class and do something top 1% in the world at their work every day, I think is an unreasonable expectation and is going to result in too much stress and too much drive. Now, look, the easier way to motivate your employees is not through command and control and saying you can't take vacation or you need to work till 6. If I slack you at 8.30 p.m., I need a response or I'm going to be grumpy about it the next day. The real way to motivate your employees to work hard is to have them be excited about the mission of the company and the work that they're doing. Have them be working on something that is actually valuable in the world and have them feel like their work directly affects that value. 
you know, the worst kind of stress is stress where you're annoyed with the work or the work is very stressful because you know that even if you're successful at it, it's not actually doing anything for anybody except for maybe making more money, but maybe not even that. Maybe just, you know, the work that needs to get done, it doesn't matter. I think stress at work is okay if it's productive stress and if it's stress that makes you feel like, you know, okay, I worked really hard on this thing and then on the other side of it, something of value came out. The the story I like to tell for this, I'll tell briefly, is about climbing a mountain. So like I've climbed some big mountains like Mount Katahdin. and it's like the tallest mountain in Maine, for example. If you ask me the day before if I'm excited to climb that mountain, I'm going to tell you, yeah, this is going to be an awesome trip. If you ask me while I'm climbing the mountain, if I'm enjoying it, I'm going to tell you like, heck no, this is terrible. <laughs> like, this is, I'm exhausted. This is like really hard work, right? And then when you ask me at the top, if it was great, I'll tell you like, yeah, this is amazing. Look at this view. I just accomplished this like incredibly difficult thing. And then if you ask me the next day, if I want to do it again, I'll say, no way, I'm, I'm exhausted. And that was really tiring, right? And so there are times where stress or extreme exertion or working really hard on something at work can still be of value, even if it feels hard in the moment. But it's only the case if you actually get that view at the top where you get to look around and see what you've accomplished. If you're just climbing the mountain to get to the top and see a bunch of trees that are in the way and you don't feel anything that you got out of it, then you know that stress has no value in your life. And if employers sort of force you through that, what comes out on the other side is a less productive, less happy, less likely to stay employee at the end. Yeah. I really like that analogy, actually. You can really apply that to anything, not just work, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I ask it during interviews. I sort of explain that and ask people about the hardest they've ever worked. And I tell them this is not a trick question. Like, it's okay to say you worked really hard and it was terrible. This is not like, I don't subscribe to, if you can forgive the term, like hustle porn orientation. Like people asking for like how hard you worked. You see people tweeting or on LinkedIn talking about how they work 120 hours a week and all this nonsense. I think it's all, first of all, it's not real. And second of all, it's not a religion to ascribe to. But yeah, I use that story and try to ask people about how they feel about the hardest times they've worked during an interview and see their reaction to it, try to understand how they orient towards crunch times and whether they've had good experiences or bad in the past and see if it aligns to how we think about work-life balance, which is that generally we want you to be emotionally healthy and you need to be able to take care of yourself. But there are also crunch times. And as long as those crunch times are productive and we see something good come out the other side, I think most employees are, are happy to do it from time to time. Yeah. That's awesome that you are embodying this, especially in a startup field where like every day matters, right? Everything that you do really, really matters. Like everything really is on the line here. And so the fact that you can still be in a place of like respecting your employees and being flexible and being understanding is really remarkable. Yeah, thank you. I mean, we got to do it. The market out there, people are quitting. There's a great resignation. You know, employees are expensive to retrain and to acquire. And so- it's a good thing to do from a like a right thing to do perspective and that you want to like treat people with respect, but it's also an economic decision that's like, you know, you got to keep your employees happy or you're going to have no more employees. That's just the reality of it. I mean, the other thing I do is I am a dad, right? I have a kid and a family I need to be around. And so my calendar ends at five every day, which I think is probably pretty rare for CEOs. Um, you know, sometimes I'll jump back on in the evenings or for a minute on the weekend. But yeah, I need a couple hours a day to just be with my family. That's awesome though. And I feel like if you set the boundary now or like that foundation, like it'll just continue through your CEO journey. And it'll also set a great example for people around you, which I'm sure it already does, but. I think so. You know, we have sort of employee surveys and stuff and we're not seeing a ton of folks that are 
upset about the expectations with respect to work-life balance. You know, we're not on a four-day work week. There are further steps that we could go, but I think we find a pretty healthy place for most of our folks. Yeah, and there's always the future once things are a little bit more established and you have more runway, you know, anything's possible. So I'm wondering, I want to switch gears a little bit and go into podcasting, right? Because that's like what you do in the platform and all that. So I'm wondering how, I know how, but like, how can someone start podcasting? How can they actually like come up with the idea, figure those things out and actually hit the ground, you know, and and run with it? Yeah. I mean, look, in the end of the day, it's not that hard to do. Everybody's got a microphone around somewhere that's not particularly high quality, but it's good enough to get started. And there's open source software like uh, Audacity that you can use that's free to do some basic audio editing. It is really the sort of thing where anybody can get started. What I see a lot of people do is spending a ton of time planning the first three episodes and sort of get lost in an analysis paralysis and, you know, six months later, release the three episodes and Nobody listens to it except for their friends, and then they sort of get discouraged and, you know, sort of flame out early. On the other hand, the real way to be successful is you got to put in the work. It's a long-term thing to grow an audience in podcasting. And so, you know, you want to train your audience to come listen to you every week, find a slot in their lives to come find you. And so being consistent, understanding you're in it for the long run, and producing great high-quality content, like those are the things that you need to focus on versus like, you know, which microphone should I buy or like how good should my album art be? Like these are things you should care about, but they're pretty low on the list relative to like, am I committed to work on this for the next year in order to generate an audience that's big enough where I feel like I've accomplished something? I'm just just an example. So, you know, in terms of how to get started, there's a great platform out there called Red Circle that you should take a look at. It's free to start one podcast on so you can create an account and create and distribute a podcast today. The technology of the podcast is one step, like I said, the microphone, you know, how you're going to do interviews, things like this. There are tons of guides you can Google for or YouTube videos to watch for that. But again, that's less important than the content itself and your ability to commit to it and take it for a journey. A lot of people ask me how to grow their podcast and their strategies. But the first answer to that question is always, you got to make a podcast that people want to listen to. And so don't spend six months coming up with an idea and developing it to then release three episodes and people think it's bad. Start talking into your mic, start producing it, start putting it out in the world as soon as you can, and then iterate and learn as people listen to the thing and tell you what they think. That would be my biggest suggestion for getting started. Now, a lot of folks get into podcasting because they want to earn money on the thing, which is a good goal, but it's not something that you should expect to do immediately. It's harder in podcasting to grow an audience than it is on something like YouTube or TikTok because there isn't as powerful of an algorithm driving folks to great content. Apple has a front page with, uh, you know, sort of top of the charts things. And, you know, Spotify has some playlists and other ways to recommend podcasts to people. These are not as powerful as algorithms you can find in other creative media. And so, A, that means you should try to take advantage of those other media to drive new listeners to your podcast. But B, you should recognize that this is going to take a while. You're going to have to build your audience by producing great content, and they're going to have to tell their friends about it. And that's going to be the best way for you to grow. So anyway, long story short, if you want to get started, go to redcircle.com, sign up. It's free to get started. And uh, that's all you really need. You know, beyond that, you know, some audio editing software, maybe a slightly nicer microphone. You know, you can get a microphone for 50 bucks. You can get audio editing software for free. If you have a Mac, it comes with GarageBand. There's lots of easy ways to produce content that people will want to listen to. But the biggest thing you got to do is get your reps in, get your practice, learn how to conduct a good interview, learn how to create content that people want to listen to. That's the most important thing. 
Yeah, I love how you keep reiterating it's a long-term game. Like it really isn't something to be had in a short-term, like six-month type of, it doesn't work like that. And even the people who are the biggest in the space, unless they have an existing audience to tap into or a platform, a lot of these people, it takes years and years for them to even get any sort of clout, advertisers, like notoriety, anything like that. Yeah. I mean, Gabby, you should speak to it. Like you've been at this for a year, right? You sort of just just got there, right? Like how much work has it been? It's obviously oh a lot God, of work dude. producing interviews, doing <laughs> it's everything. so much, but like not in a bad way. Like I do love it and it's so much fun, but people think that it's a one and done deal and it's not. Every single day you have to really hit it hard, talk about it, scream from the rooftops, let everyone know what you're doing. Take surveys from your audience, make sure that the content that you're creating is relevant and they actually want to listen to it, providing value, right? The one thing I always tell people too, when they're like, oh, I want to start a show is like, I asked them, well, is it about you or is it about your audience? So if you go about this with, I want it to be about me, you've already failed because it's not about you. It's about the people who are listening. That's all that matters. Yeah, that's a super interesting insight. The other thing I hear from people often is I want to do a podcast. Say, okay, what's it going to be about? And they say, it's going to be about the Marvel Cinematic Universe or it's going to be about, it's a true crime podcast or whatever. There's bajillions of podcasts about these topics. And so to your point about sort of making sure you're producing something that your audience wants to hear, you want to find a space where you're an expert, where you really know something, where you have something unique and different to say so that you can find that audience out there who should hear that from you. If it's just like, here's my life as a XYZ kind of person, unless you're incredibly entertaining as an audio creator, it might be hard to find people who are not already listening to similar shows, right? So that's another place to, to pay attention. Anyway, I love your point about how much work it is. It goes to the mountain, right? It's like, sure, it's a ton of work, but if on the other end of it, you have a thousand people listening to you every week, you know, that's something that would fill a huge theater if you were to go and do stand up or give a, a TED talk or something like that. And if you were standing up in front of a thousand people, you know, you'd be nervous and it would feel incredible afterwards. And a lot of podcasters that get to that stage have an opportunity to do that every week uh, if they really focus on their craft and grow to it to 1,000, 5,000, 10, 20, 50,000. You know, lots of podcasters on Red Circle that are just one person at a microphone that have gotten up into the tens of thousands of people listening. It's just a truly incredible achievement. And, and at that size, you know, there's six-figure revenues achievable for you for the year. And a platform like Red Circle can help you do that. Yeah, I love the platform so much. I mean, there's so many things about why I like it. I would say it sounds silly. I mean, the advertising thing is great, but I love the heat map so much. I love being able to zoom in and see where people are like coming from and the demographics and all that stuff and to see the reach and where people are, you know, kind of finding the show. But the advertising thing is great too because you have two sides. You can either do it where like you record it yourself or it's already pre-selected and you just kind of slot it in somewhere and you don't really have to do anything, which is nice. That's right. Yeah. So first of all, on the analytics platform, you know, one of the things that's unique about ours is that sure, you know, some folks have geo aspects. They'll show you like what states or what cities uh, folks are coming from on Red Circle. There's an interactive map where you can go and see exactly kind of where your audience is distributed. It's displayed as a heat map. And then on the advertising side, one of the things that's super unique about our platform is that we combine automation for programmatic advertising, which is the pre-recorded advertising you just mentioned, Gabby, that's sort of inserted without you having to do any work. You just turn it on, the ads come in, you can control for certain categories. Let's say you don't want any political advertising, you can take off political ads and we take care of the rest. You know, you just tell us where within the audio you want the ad to go and Red Circle will insert it and stick the money in your bank account every month. And so that's one style of ads we do. And then in addition, we do 
what's called a host-read or endorsement-style advertising, where you as the host read the advertising. Those ads go for a much higher rate because we're sort of, A, you have to do some work to record it, and B, your endorsement comes with a lot of value. And the way we've done automation for that is when a deal comes through with our great advertising sales team who's out there selling ads across our catalog every day, you get a little email that says, hey, here's the deal. If you record this ad, you're going to make $450. All you got to do is read the script and upload it here. And then again, Red Circle will take care of inserting it into the content, removing it when the ad campaign is done, charging the advertiser, and then putting the money in your bank account when it comes through. Sort of fully automated, what usually takes a team of people or you have to hire somebody to manage your calendar and your schedule of all these different ads, put the scripts in the right place. And instead, just solve that whole problem with software uh, and fully automate it. What that enables us to do is not just make it easy for you as the podcaster, where the ads just come in, you record them, and you're done. You don't have to think about it, get notifications with deadlines and everything else. It also makes it way easier for the advertiser to deploy a campaign of this type across large volumes of podcasts. Normally, you have to hire a team of people with emails and spreadsheets and PDFs and checks in the mail, and that's operationally very intense and expensive. And instead, what we can do is deploy it with the software. You get that same host-read endorsement-style ad but you get to deploy it across a larger scale. What that enables us to do is, as the podcasting market continues to grow, we just saw a report from the IAB, the Internet Advertising Bureau today, that it's a $1.4 billion market now. As that continues to grow, we want to see that money not just end up in the hands of Joe Rogan or the New York Times or NPR or whatever the largest publishers are. We want to make it possible for middle-class creators to participate in this market. And it's only through software like ours that that's going to be possible to enable advertisers to be able to spread this money around to larger and larger sets of micro-influencers of audio. Uh, And what that means is, as money flows into podcasting, it's not just going to go to celebrities and big business, it's going to go to the independent creator. And that's why I get excited to build this business, is that uh, it's not just about delivering money to podcasters, it's about delivering money to podcasters who are these interesting independent creators who historically have struggled to earn in this medium relative to the larger podcasts that sit at the top of the market. Yeah. And it's also, like you had said, the exchange, because I've been there before, of like trying to do the emails and all those things and going back and forth and then ultimately finding out they're like, oh, we either A, don't have the budget or B, like we don't think that what you're selling or, or your podcast is big enough for us to even touch it. And you're like, well, I just wasted all this time going back and forth. Whereas if you guys already have a platform that kind of links people up to what should be advertised on X podcasts and all those things and being the middleman makes things a lot easier. Exactly, right? I mean, an advertiser wants to move the needle for their business, right? And so deploying $500 into one mid-sized podcast is not going to do that for them. It's not going to scale up their marketing operation. It's not going to help grow their business. Now, if we can help them put it on 50 podcasts for $500, now all of a sudden they can move dollars into this space to actually push listeners to their product, actually grow their business. And meanwhile, we just got a large number of creators paid, right? And so the power of our business is not just the technology, but also the increasingly large size of our network. Eventually, we'll be able to scale up budgets to arbitrary size for the largest advertisers that are out there. Um, but even today, you know, we have large advertisers that are used to deploying you know, millions of dollars on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or something that can now participate at a pretty large scale in podcasting through Red Circle software. All to the benefit of our creators, right? Like I said before, when I went to start Red Circle, I wanted to be sure 
this is something that I could be excited about, something that was a fundamental good for the world. And you don't think about like, okay, an advertising platform is a thing to be a fundamental good in the world, right? But when we get the emails from creators that say, hey, you know, now I can afford to pay for my kid's next college semester because I just made $10,000 this quarter from you, that shows me that we've made the right choice. We've built something that's helping creators to, again, be anything, even just getting rewarded for the work is enough. But in some cases, to earn financial independence or significant new wealth from their podcast is an incredible, incredible feeling to be a part of. Damn. Well, when I hit that $10,000 mark or something, I will email you guys very excitedly. And okay, <laughs> thank we're, you. we're working on it for you. <laughs> it is really nice though, when someone can harness their craft in the way of like being a podcaster or a creator and get paid for it. It's like, it's so fun. It really is. Yeah. You know, in some ways, the generation of the audience is payment in itself. Like I said, sort of getting up in front of an audience of 5,000 people every week is an incredible achievement. But then to be rewarded financially for all that work, a lot of times, even if it's not life-changing money, the reward feels very powerful for a lot of creators. Yeah, it is. And it makes a big difference. So I'm wondering with just podcasting in general, like I get a lot of pushback from people where they're like, oh, it's like oversaturated. It's a dying thing, like all of that. But like, Hey, what's your take on that? Also, like, what are some of the current podcasting trends or forecasts that you and the Red Circle team kind of see happening? Yeah, I mean, like I said, there are sections where there is saturation, right? Like, I I don't know if the world needs another true crime podcast, for example, although people love that stuff. So, you know, if that's your thing, go ahead and make one. So there are definitely sections where that's the case. But in terms of listenership, we're still somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of Americans listening to a podcast every month. That number is much, much higher on the radio. It's still like 80, 90% of Americans listening to the radio every month, which is crazy because I haven't listened to the radio in forever. And I'm like a normal American consumer. So there's definitely tons of listening hours of growth left for podcasting as our listening habits in the car and elsewhere digitized from the traditional terrestrial radio and into digital audio, both for music and for talk. And so it's unquestionable for me. And of course, I'm the like starry-eyed founder. I'm the one who thinks that this is the most incredible thing that there is. So, you know, check my facts if you want. But, you know, in my view, there's just tons of listener growth remaining in podcasting. We saw it be pretty healthy through the pandemic. There was a short period of time as there was across a lot of media where people were like, okay, I'm stuck at home now. I'm not commuting. I'm not going to the gym. And so where do I listen to podcasts? And this habit of listening to podcasts that we love found new places within our lives for that to happen. People are putting their wireless headphones in while they do the dishes or take out the trash or whatever other things, mow the lawn. We found new places for that. And as the world continues to return to what we saw before and people start going to the gym or start commuting to an office again, you know, maybe not your audience, but the rest of the world, you know, people are going to be listening to podcasts more. And as your car becomes more digitized, I just think that there's just going to be more opportunities for podcast listening to happen there. So generally speaking, tons of room on the consumer side for growth. And then within the advertising context, you know, podcasts have still way less ads than you can hear on the radio. And that's a good thing. We want these ads to remain effective, but there's still even room to grow without overloading podcasts with advertising to fill all the podcasts that don't have any ads that want them with software like ours, as well as to sort of fill the sort of middle-class podcasters that have some ads but aren't sort of all the way done to a point where the advertising industry for podcasting, even without further consumer growth and listening, is poised to continue to grow as well. So there's just a ton of opportunity from a business perspective in this channel. And as a creator, you know, sure, there are lots and lots of podcasts that are out there. There are millions 
a lot of them are just somebody screaming into a microphone, releasing one episode, and like it disappeared into the ether. And it's, it's a podcast. You can find it on, on Apple or Spotify, but nobody's listening to that thing. In practice, there's probably about 50,000 podcasts out there that are actually moving numbers that are greater than a couple hundred downloads per episode. If you just think about the multitude of topics and things that exist in the world for somebody to talk about, you know, there's still so much room left to create something interesting. So it's really on you to be interesting and have something that you want to say that's compelling for people to listen to uh, and, and the, where there aren't 12 other podcasts with the same name sitting right next to you saying the same thing. In the end of the day, there's going to be more listeners. There's going to be ups and downs of different shows and different creators. There's going to be space for you to be found, um, but you got to put in the work and you got to design a show topic and idea that's that's unique and interesting. Yeah, I love all that. And also reiterating the fact that yes, the market is saturated, but also so many of these podcasts are inactive or people aren't consistent with them or things like that. So if you can just be that person who's consistent, you're already like at the top 10%, honestly. That's right. I mean, there are millions of what they call pod-faded podcasts, podcasts that are out there but no longer active. And people are not listening to those podcasts anymore. You know, they might get a little bit of traffic here and there. So don't be discouraged if you find another podcast that seems like it's in a similar topic but hasn't published an episode since 2019, then, you know, go for it. There's, there's probably a niche there. Any other forecasts or anything you want to mention about podcasting? You did a really great job of painting a picture of like, what someone needs to do, what they can expect, and how best to monetize their platform. Yeah. I think in terms of forecasts and trends, I think the other thing that we will see through software like ours is that there's going to be more opportunity for mid-size independent podcasters to participate in the market. And so up until now, it's been possible to make some money, but I think we're going to see more of the dollars in the space make their way down to, like I said, the micro-influencers of audio. That same thing has already happened in, say, Instagram influencers, for example, where most of the money started with Kim Kardashian and now it's with a person from high school that you haven't talked to in 12 years who's an influencer with 50,000 people subscribed. That happened already in other forms of social media and it's going to happen in podcasting as advertisers get used to the idea that their brand can be safe with these kinds of middle-class creators and that these middle-class creators, when aggregated together, can achieve superior performance to Michael Barbaro in the New York Times or Joe Rogan, who's reading 10 minutes of ads that nobody's listening to. Right? These middle-class creators that have an authentic voice and that haven't overfilled their podcast with a bajillion ads, these are the ones that can actually move numbers for advertisers, as long as software like ours can actually make that operationally efficient for them. What I see as a trend is bigger share of the advertising spend is going to move itself down the market, which is great for middle-class creators. I'm, like, I'm here for it. I'm ready for it. So <laughs> I'll be around. Yes. So are we. That's what we're all about. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you kind of sharing all your nuggets of gold about your journey, as well as like just the topic of podcasting and what Red Circle is doing. So what I like to do with every single guest as I wrap it up is just ask one final question. It's if you could give advice to your younger self, what would that be? Yeah, I thought about this in advance because I knew it was coming. Um, and, you know, look, when I think about my younger self, I went to high school at a sort of like affluent suburban high school outside New York City in New Jersey. And, you know, as a result, there was a very kind of like high pressure sort of achievement oriented culture there, right? Where it was like, everybody's going to go to a fancy college and everybody needs to get a bajillion points on their SATs or whatever. And that was kind of drilled into me as a young man. And I have no problem with that. You know, I was able to go to a good school and there were a lot of doors that were open for me because of the work that I put in then. That said, there was a certain kind of 
achievement orientation and programming that happened in my brain at that time that sort of stuck around for a long time and sort of carried, I think, all the way into the job I had at Uber. And if I could give myself advice as a younger person, it would be to pay more attention to the things that I was passionate and excited about instead of the things where I could get an A or or 100 on. Instead of sort of chasing a dopamine rush of quote-unquote success, instead be looking for the one that comes with creation. I think that's like a hard message to tell like a 17-year-old, but I could imagine trying my best to sort of help myself understand that as a child. You know, what would have been different? I'm not sure that much, but I think how I would have felt about it along the way would have been different and sort of had profound impact on my sort of mental state uh, through all the ups and downs that have come with being at Uber, doing a startup, is that instead of making this thing about like, can I be successful? Can this thing make a lot of money? Can I ring the bell uh, at the stock market someday uh, when my company IPOs? Instead, just think about what have I built? What have I created? And what kind of value does that have in the world every day? You know, when I look around at employees who have left the company and gone on to bigger and better jobs at other companies, a success orientation is going to say, eh, like, that's annoying. This person left the company. And a creation orientation says, like, wow, look at what we were able to help this employee grow and achieve where they went and got a better job and did something better for themselves afterwards. When our business has, like, a bad month or something, it's easy to be like, oh, we're screwing up. This thing's a failure. And instead, a creation orientation focuses on how much money we've been able to put in podcasters' pockets, how many employees have grown uh, and learned from their work here. And so, you know, altogether, I think there's lots of ways to feel like you've achieved something, and it doesn't have to be dollars or scores on a test or placement in uh, Forbes 30 under 30. I'm 36, so I'm definitely not getting into that. Um, (laughs) But more importantly... Sort of looking around and understanding the value of what you've been able to produce in the world, I think is going to make you a happier person in the end of the day. Yeah, I love that. I'm 28. I'm going to be 29 about a month. And I'm only just starting to like recognize that switch between the monetary success and the accolades versus the creation side of things. And also just like the life enjoyment, like very basic, let's just enjoy life type of mentality, which has been remarkably helpful. Yeah. In the end of the day, if you have to work your butt off and you don't have solid relationships with your friends and your family and you put yourself in an unhealthy mental state just to achieve some kind of financial freedom at the end, I'm not sure that what you are going to have on the other end is going to feel as good uh, as if you tried it a different way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. This has been really awesome. I'm wondering, where can people find you, Mike? I know I'm going to put the things in the description um, for people who are listening, but if they're driving, where can they do a Google search and find you or uh, get connected or even start in Red Circle. Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, if you're interested in podcasting or you already have a podcast, check us out at redcircle.com. You can sign up there for free and play around with it. Uh, and it's it's free in a real sense. It's not just uh, like, you know, free for seven days and you can't actually do anything. If you have one podcast and you want the basic tools on Red Circle, it's free. And then if you're interested in learning more about me or following me, uh, Twitter is probably the best place to do it. It's just my first initial and last name, M-Kaden, M-K-A-D-I-N is my Twitter handle. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing because my show and my platform wouldn't be here without you. So, (laughs) Well, thank you. This is a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast. Visit corporatequitter.com for resources, extended content, and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter, and to learn more about how you can leave the 9 to 5, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys.